The university that has outlasted empires. The pharaoh that time forgot. And the forgotten weapon that conquered the world. This is Peripheral History. You're listening to Peripheral History on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, where we discuss events that happen in the periphery of history. I'm Ryan Bagley. And I'm Carter McNish. All right. On today's show, we've got the usual three segments for you. And to start it off today is synchronicities. Today's synchronicity has to do with the University of Oxford. Not really anything in particular, but in general, its existence, because it's been around for a really long time. Its exact date of origin is unknown, but there's evidence that teaching has been going on in the city of Oxford since 1096 AD. In 1167, Henry II banned English students from attending the University of Paris, so Oxford grew pretty quickly from that point on. Cambridge split from Oxford in 1209. It got its royal charter from Henry III in 1248. Um, An interesting thing, structurally speaking, that sets it apart from American colleges is that it has no central campus. It's 39 semi-independent colleges and six permanent private halls all sprinkled throughout the city of Oxford um, and organized into four divisions. The humanities, the social sciences, mathematical, physical, and life sciences, that's all one, and medical sciences. Um... And, you know, with it being around since 1096, a lot of history has gone on. Yeah, I mean, 1096, that's only about, well, it's actually 30 years after William the Conqueror conquered England, right? So just think about that. You know, William the Conqueror's kids could have gone to Oxford. That is how old this university is. And, of course, there's plenty of stuff that has happened after William the Conqueror's taking over of England. Ryan, I think you've got some stuff on that. Yeah, so in addition to all of the Renaissance, the especially Italian Renaissance, that is, happening, uh, you have the rise and fall of the Ottoman Empire, from, which lasted from 1299 till 1922, the discovery of a new world. Um, interestingly enough, the Aztec Empire also rose and fell um, during Oxford's existence, but I was shocked to find out that it only lasted about 100 years, from 1428 A.D. to 1521. Yeah, one more thing, too, is that the University of Oxford was around during the time of the Roman Empire. Uh, the Byzantines, we normally call them Byzantines, right? But they're actually just the Eastern Roman Empire. And Oxford being founded sometime between the 11th century and the 13th century uh means that it was around during the time of the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire. Yeah, that's so, a crazy thought. Yeah. You know, the, the, if you go from Rome to Oxford, you have covered all of ancient and modern history, which that's, is pretty insane. That is pretty insane. And speaking of other unexpected things, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, and that also happened during Oxford's existence from 1478 to 1834. Another major event that happened was, of course, the Protestant Reformation. Um, after the, the Reformation hit England in the wake of Henry VIII, the Catholics at the University of Oxford all uh, jumped ship and moved to the University of Douai in France. And if you ever heard of the Douai-Rheims translation of the Bible, that's the translation of the Bible done by Catholic scholars that moved from Oxford to Douai and then eventually to Rheims. It's also old enough that... Uh the building of the Taj Mahal by the Mughal emperors happened, that happened in 1632. And of course, Oxford was already a very old institution by the time the Taj Mahal came around. Which makes the Taj Mahal sound really young. I, I mean, until doing the research for this, I was just kind of under the assumption that it was 
built sometime BC, probably just because it just sounds, feels old. Yeah, I mean, if you read Shakespeare, that is older than the Taj Mahal, which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, really crazy. Moving back to England, you have the English Civil War from 1642 to 1651. And some interesting tensions surrounding that were that the college itself was a bastion of the royalist faction, but the town leaned heavily parliamentarian. So not exactly, uh, you know, a time of, of love and harmony in between the townsfolk and the university folk. And not just because the kids were partying, too. You know, this was a yeah. political thing. I'm sure that was happening. They're actually, on a side note, there are some funny some funny records from medieval universities. I can't remember which one where they had this prohibition against harassing the freshmen. Oh, because apparently that was, there was enough of a problem of upperclassmen just messing with the freshmen too much. So there's this proclamation about, you know, don't empty your chamber pots on them or anything like that. <laughs> you know, that's really something you got to tell people, you know, the chamber pots it's, you, you see them on the street. It's so tempting. I mean, like I'm tempted to do it now. But... I know. Yeah, because there are all those chamber pots on the streets these days. Right, yeah. No, Public I, sanitation. Yep, it's it's gotten a lot better, right? Mm. You know, we still use the chamber pots. <laughs> Wait, Any... we don't use the chamber pots? Oh, I'm just getting this from the uh, producers backstage. We don't have chamber pots anymore. Then, That's weird. Okay, huh. well. I guess I'll... my dorm, they said my dorm was freshly renovated, but I guess not. Yeah, I guess not. Mm. Anyway, also on top of... All of these other major historical events, literally everything with America is not as old as the University of Oxford. This college, I mean, university rather, has been around way longer than our country, which is a crazy thought. Yeah, I mean, so Hillsdale has a study abroad program in Oxford. And, you know, we've been doing that for approximately, what, maybe two or three percent of Oxford's existence? Yeah. Have Hillsdale students been attending the school there you know that is a pretty crazy thing to think about sure is another interesting note about oxford itself is that it is home to the largest university press in the world and for all you hillsdale students who are listening i bet you've had at least one class with a handout or a textbook printed by oxford university press yeah western heritage comes to mind of which oxford is like the western heritage i mean we've been talking about you know, how Oxford is basically covering half the stuff that we learn in that class, you know, yeah, it's with pretty its nuts. existence. I'm pretty sure the, the Western Heritage Reader itself is published by Hillsdale. Right. But you're right about Oxford kind of being there for a lot of Western Heritage yeah. as it happened. And speaking of Western Heritage, we've got some more exciting stuff from the heritage of Western culture coming up for you. But first, I'd like to remind you that you are listening to Peripheral History on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. And Ryan, you've got this next segment for us on an Egyptian pharaoh that I mentioned earlier. Yes, slightly more ancient than Oxford University. This segment's a bit different than ones that we've done previously on our show, and we're just going to take the opportunity to focus on a person of interest. In this case, the pharaoh Akhenaten. And what's interesting is he's kind of colloquially known as Egypt's heretic pharaoh. He reigned from 1353 to 1335 B.C., roughly. His name was originally Amenhotep IV, but he decided to change his name because of his religion. You see, unlike the traditional Egyptian religion, which focused on gods like Horus and Amun-Ra, Isis, Osiris, etc., Pharaoh Akhenaten preferred the worship of, preferred the worship of the sun god, Aten, as opposed to Ra. 
And the interesting thing is that when he changed his name, it's something called a theophoric name. So that means a name that is modeled after that of a deity or that involves a deity somehow. So Akhenaten means probably something to the effect of Aten is satisfied. And really his entire life was trying to satisfy Aten. He tried to uh, overhaul Egyptian religion and culture um, to focus on the sun god Aten, who we're not really sure. Maybe he saw him monotheistically, so Aten was the only god that existed. Or maybe it was something more like monolatry, which is there are many gods, but we worship just this one. Anyway, he moved Egypt's capital to a brand new city that is nowadays, the ruins of it are now known as Amarna, but originally they were also called Akhenaten, which who knows, maybe that was egoistic or maybe he was also just, you know, keeping on with the Aten is satisfied deal. Or yeah, both. I mean, you know, you got to keep Aten satisfied, and the city is definitely very satisfying. Mm. Especially if it's got a grid system, that is very satisfying to look on. Yes. Especially if, you know, you're looking on from Aten's view at the sun. Oh, yeah. You know, you get that top-down view, just squares and squares and squares. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, you gotta, you got to love the aesthetic, especially, like, Rome. Like, that city's a nightmare. Right? It looks like somebody just, like, picked up buildings in a Monopoly game and just, like, threw them into a tightly condensed area. But speaking of pleasing Aten with the city's layout, it said that there was an excellent view of the sunset from the city. Oh, well, there you go. Because, you know, when you worship the sun god, it's nice to have a good view of him. And, uh, you know, it goes both ways. You have a good view of him, he has a good view of you. Yeah. You know, it's pretty great. Yeah. In addition to um, overhauling Egyptian religion, some of the most unusual Egyptian art comes out of this time period as well. Um, the Egyptians had a very rigid and kind of like paint by numbers not literally but and a, and a, a paint by numbers if you will approach to art you know where one plus two equals five kind of deal something like that yeah so yeah yeah so like you could only depict the royal family in certain ways or you know like what you could depict in art was very limited and how you depicted it very limited so that's why when we think of egyptian art it's all pretty uniform yeah but it starts looking kind of wacky in this period and we don't mm. know if that's because he just loved himself some modern art or he may have been allowing artists to depict him and the royal family more accurately. And what we're seeing is the result of inbreeding that so often affects royal families. Huh. I mean, like, you know, perhaps it's just that his art, like the sun god and the sun, is just way out there, man, you know? <laughs> Quite possibly. And, of course, as he's doing all this, he's also known for neglecting foreign policy. So Egypt's huh. influence on nearby nations and its alliances kind of uh, flounder during this time. And with all that's going on, he he's, has a lot of opponents who don't like the fact that he's changing all these things. The ancient Egyptians were heavily reliant on tradition. They saw that as what kept them strong. And they saw that the times when Egypt was weak was when they tried to innovate and rejected their traditions. And the time when Egypt was strong was when they maintained those traditions, kept them going. So the priestly class especially was not a fan of him. And when he died, his son, or, well, when he died, the pharaoh who succeeded him was Tutankhamun, King Tut, who was probably his son. And the interesting thing is that King Tut also changed his name. He was originally named Tutankhaten, so you hear the sun god Aten in there, and he changed it to Tutankhamun to have the more traditional Egyptian god Amun in his name instead. And after Akhenaten's death, the Egyptian people committed damnatio memoriae on him, which is Latin for damning of the memory. So 
all of his monuments, anything referencing him, gone. And we didn't find out about his existence until around 1714 when Amarna slash Akhenaten, the city, was rediscovered. That's crazy. You know, you, you read a lot today about, you know, people toppling statues or whatnot. Yeah. You know, but rarely is it so effective as to completely erase someone from the historical record. Yeah, no kidding. You'd think that people would remember him. Yeah. Or that somebody would have kept something in some place other than just the ruins of a city, right? You know? Yeah. Maybe some kind of cult of Atun, you know? Who knows? I mean, who knows? There probably was some remnant, but it just goes to show how unpopular he was that all of society just committed to forgetting that he existed and just expunging him from the record. Yeah, it's there's few people in history that get that kind of bad treatment. Yeah. You know, which is honestly from the perspective of a pharaoh who wants to preserve his legacy and who was seen as a god in life right you know going from literal god well i guess if you're worshiping atun then you're literal pleasing god you know to literal we don't know you exist (laughs) it's quite something yeah and because of the fact that his memory was damned we don't really know for sure where his body is. It's potentially a mummy that is found in the KV-55 tomb in Valley of the Kings. It shows some some genetic material in common with King Tut, but we don't really know much beyond that. It could be Aten, I mean, it could be Akhenaten. It could be some other relative of King Tut. We don't know. On a tangent from this, one of Akhenaten's wives was a Queen Nefertiti, who is one of the more famous Egyptian queens. If you've ever seen um, one of the more well-known pieces of Egyptian art is a bust of an Egyptian queen, very regal looking, and that's her. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, you know, my fair share of Egyptian art. You know, if you go to the Met, they've got that whole section there. Yeah. And uh, they've got some really cool art, but of course, you're not going to see anything of Akhenaten in any of those museums. Actually, there is a little bit of the art that has survived. Really? So, for example, in the um, Toledo Museum of Art, in their classics room, they do have some from Akhenaten's reign. That's it's, crazy. It's not a whole lot, so you can't really see the huge difference between it and other Egyptian art from, from my memory of it. It's been about a year since I saw it. And there are some other surviving pieces that are larger that you can really see just like how weird the people look, especially. But, yeah, there is not a whole lot of it left. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's crazy, right? He changed everything, and, you know, perhaps it was just the ancient version of some people's reaction to modern art. You Who know, knows? how it's all wavy and weird. and Or, well, if in the case of the Cubists, it's very straight lines and weird. Minecraft. But, you know, yeah. But never, at least we haven't tried yet to erase modern art from the historical records, so we'll I mean, see what happens. I was going to say that Hitler tried, which he did, but he did. I, I'm generally against bringing Hitler into conversations because it's done way too often. Oh, yeah. You know, you never want to bring out the Hitler. <laughs> yeah. Though his uh, stealing and hiding of massive amounts of art during World War II may be a good topic for a future episode. Stay tuned. Speaking of which, you're listening to Peripheral History on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7. And we've got one more section for you. And that is our regular feature, Weapons That Change the World. Now, today, we're talking about a weapon that is not often thought about, hence why this is peripheral history. But 
that changed the world probably more than any other weapon we'll mention on this show. You see, we're talking about the Mongolian composite bow, which allowed the Mongols to take over the known world. You see, in the 13th century when Genghis Khan was rising to power, the Mongolian tribes were not an empire, it was just a collection of these nomadic groups. You see, Mongolia is dominated by both the Gobi Desert and just a bunch of tundra. It's southern Siberia, that's where it is. And you can't live off the land, so you wouldn't think that uh, an empire would start there, let alone one that would conquer practically the known world. Yeah. And the reason that they were able to is because of their innovative tactics and strategy inspired in large part by this compound bow. You see, it was very small, and because of the uh, nomadic nature of the Mongol army and of the whole nation as a whole, the composite bow being smaller and more powerful was great for people on horseback. So it allowed these Mongolians to get on horseback with bows and have just as much power, say, if not more, as an English longbowman. That's impressive. Now, that kind of also reminds me of the medieval invention of the crossbow, where you do have a, a significantly smaller bow in terms of the, like the, the size of the arms of the bow, mm-hmm. in terms of the size of the bow's arms, but it packs a lot more power in that case because it's mechanical, but in the case of Mongolians, it's, it's still hand-powered, and the fact that you, could, that you could arm your cavalry in this way was quite something. Usually cavalry did not have ranged weapons at this time. Yeah, and it's not just a ranged weapon. Most horse archers at this period had a range of 200, maybe 300 yards if they were lucky. This bow, the way it was constructed, it had multiple layers of different kinds of wood wrapped with animal skin and using uh, the basically glue from horse skin to keep them all together. It increased the range to over 500 yards, you see, and that is a long way. Yeah, that's crazy. You think, you know, at Agincourt with the English longbowmen, how they had this insane longbow with great range. Well, this bow requires way less effort on the part of the trainee or the rider, and it gives you almost as good, if not better, range. So the Mongols on horseback, the horses allowed them to be very mobile, traveling hundreds of miles in just days, right? Um, they would actually sleep on horseback as their horses were running. Whoa. Yeah. They would um, basically be riding 24-7 from one spot to another, and on their way from one battle to another, if they needed to and couldn't stop, they'd slit open a vein in the horse's neck and drink from it to get sustenance. That's crazy. Yeah, these guys were nuts. Wow. It's like... Wow. (laughs) Yeah, and they knew exactly the right spot to cut to so that it wouldn't make the horse bleed out, right? That's ridiculous. I mean, like, did did they have one guy who stayed awake to like guide the whole the whole train of them? Or yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, the wow. This this has a has the feel of like a chaotic family car trip, but it's just dudes on horses, and the horse is their vehicle and their snack. Yeah, it's weird, man. No, it's dedication. (laughs) Dedication. There was one Mongol who encountered an enemy force that was in a superior position, so he rode north for 300 miles and west for 700 miles and then came back around and ambushed the enemy from behind just a week later. Whoa. That's that's covering a lot of distance 
fast for that time in history. And those must have been some really hardy horses, too. Yeah, these horses were insane. Of course, the Mongols being nomads for so long and relying on these horses for so mm -hmm. long, they had bred horses that were just simply put built different from <laughs> both Chinese and Western horses. That's incredible. Yeah, and so the horses with the mobility that they offered plus the bows that allowed them to stay on their horses both as basically lancers or swordsmen on, on horseback or as archers on horseback allowed the whole Mongol army to, at one point or another, whether or not they wanted, they could either choose to be on horseback or choose to be on foot. Every single Mongol soldier up until later times when, when they allowed other cultures to form parts of their oh, army. Oh, okay. Uh, up until then, the whole Mongol army was on horseback, and they might dismount for a battle, but most of the time they're staying on horseback. That's some, that's some crazy cross-training, too. It's not that often that you see cavalry also as infantry. Usually it's two separate units working together, but that's quite something. Yeah, and this and having horse archers allowed the Mongols to try some really innovative tactics, you see. Uh, there's something that people in the West refer to as the parting shot or the Parthian shot. Yeah which is something that the Mongols really perfected. They'd run up with their horses toward an enemy line as if they were going to charge, maybe fire off one or two shots, get shot at in return, not take too many casualties. Then they'd start pretending to run away, convincing the enemy that they'd won the battle. Yeah. The enemy would break formations to try and chase after them, and the Mongols on their horses would turn around and fire one shot back towards the enemy now that their shield wall had been broken and do a bunch of damage wheel around and with their lancers and swordsmen run right back in to the tangled up formations. That's amazing. And uh, basically the all of these inventions and tactics and more made the Mongols practically unbeatable in an open field of battle. Wow. The going advice for anyone facing the Mongols, which, you know, you might have to face the Mongols sometime in your future. Yes. Is to hold up in a defensive position and not leave. Basically, get inside your castle, get as much food and water as you can, and let the Mongols ride past you. And never make a deal with them. Wow. It's, uh, they, were practically, they were practically invincible. And the only way they were defeated was simply by being outlasted. And most people did not have the time to react in order to get enough supplies together yeah. to outlast the mongols and so they ended up conquering all of china most of southeast asia most of india all of korea all of iran and persia all of the middle east up into egypt which we were talking about with akhenaten yeah but of course way later they t conquered almost all of turkey and they started conquering all of russia and eastern europe uh basically it was only time that caught up to them where the empire just got so stretched out and eventually different rulers from different sections and different generals started splitting up the empire. Yeah. But the descendants of the Mongol hordes were living in Europe and in Russia and in Asia and everywhere for hundreds, if not thousand, a thousand years after yeah. the Magyars, a descendant of the Mongol tribes, they were the people who really influenced the formation of modern Hungary. And huh. that's 
entirely because of the Mongols' effective use of these weapons to conquer the known world. That's and amazing. It really influenced everyone. You see, way after the Mongols, people using composite bows. You see the the Byzantines doing it. You see the French and English doing it. Everybody adopts these composite bows. Really um, trendy then. Yeah, they really trended after they everybody got their butts kicked. Wow. Right? And um, the composite bow even dictated their campaign season. When do you think most people would go on campaign? Probably during the, the summer, maybe starting in the early spring. Yeah, spring or summer. That's when, you know, the weather is best. The, the ground is usually pretty solid. And uh, that's when you're going to have the most supplies because you'll have harvested everything already. Yeah. Right? The Mongols almost exclusively early on campaigned in winter. And you see, the reason is because of the compound bows. I was mentioning earlier, they were made of, they were glued together. Yeah. If it's raining, the glue comes apart. Oh. And it can't rain in winter. It only snows. So if they're on the march in April, April showers bring May flowers, also yeah. they ruin your bows. So they can't campaign during seasons, or at least prefer not to during seasons when it can rain ruining the glue of their bows and that gives them even more of a, an advantage because people aren't expecting war in the off season so to speak exactly so these bows both intentionally and unintentionally made the mongols just this fearsome force to deal with wow no an interesting thing with that is that not only as you're saying with the mongols spreading out over such a large area um I think a significant percent of the Chinese population is directly descended from Genghis Khan to this day, somewhere around 1% maybe, which yeah. isn't much, but when you're a country of a billion people, a billion people that's quite a few. Yeah, um, that's a few million. And on top of that, an interesting thing where the Mongols, especially their bows and their horses, pop up in popular culture is in the young adult Ranger's Apprentice fantasy series. Mm. Um the Rangers, are, are, it's all set in a very like England-esque uh, fantasy world. But the interesting thing is that the Rangers themselves, who are the cool medieval Batman types, are right. um, their horses are special bred from horses that were smuggled from the the far eastern steppes in their world. And their bows, they don't they use the standard English longbow um, mostly, but for, their, for the young apprentices of the rangers who are still being trained, they do use uh, composite bows, again, inspired by the warriors of the Eastern Steppes called the Temujai in, in the series, hmm. as a training bow because of the lighter draw weight, but still um, effective in terms of power. Yeah, and the Huns, or rather the Mongols, had some pretty, really scary nicknames, like uh, the Huns, their predecessors in the 400s AD. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Attila the Hun was called the Scourge of God because people just were not able to react in time and were not able to stop him. So everybody thought that the Huns and then the Mongols after them was this kind of divine judgment. And they're also somewhat responsible for something that other people considered a divine judgment, the bubonic plague. Really? It was during the Mongol conquests when they attacked the city of, I believe, Baku on the okay. uh, Caspian Sea. And they had chopped off the heads of a bunch of their prisoners and as they realized do. yeah as you do that this is something that we won't go into because it's graphic but the mongols were big fans of doing gruesome things but they 
had chopped off the heads and captured the bodies of a bunch of prisoners, right? And many of them had the bubonic plague. Okay. And so they catapulted them over the walls of the city into the town and intentionally spread the disease in the town. And they carried it with them from China all the way west into Europe, which is where we have our most famous accounts of the bubonic plague. Oh, wow. Talk about biological warfare. Yeah, so, you know, Eastern Asia, using biological warfare to conquer the world since, well, the 1300s AD. (laughs) About that. About that. Hmm. Anyhow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all we have for you this week. Thank you for listening to Peripheral History on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Be sure to tune in next week, where we will be discussing more history in the peripheries. Peripheral History. Peripheral History.